Today's sermon will be from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer, rather, to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be, with, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That ends the readings of God's word. Please be seated. Lord God, I pray that you'll make it known, this great hopeful truth, grant me the power and ability to declare it, proclaim it, to explain it. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Saving faith always involves a funeral. That is to say, the very real death of one sinful nature. And because human beings are culpable inside and out before Almighty, holy God, we cannot possibly stand before his righteousness having violated his commands. His standard is perfection. Absolute, holy perfection. We are sinfully guilty through and through. And in no way can measure up. His standard is perfection. And therefore, uh, we are in desperate need for him to look upon us with pity, favor, and love-filled grace. To rescue us from our chosen, self-willed enslavement. And he does so by sending his son from out of heaven and to this earth, taking on a human body, that is Jesus, the Christ, in order to live that perfect life out. The life I'm not capable of living the life that you are impotent and incapable of living out, and then to die on a cross to bear the due penalty of God's holy justice, his unmitigated wrath against sin and sinners, so that those who believe by grace do not have to bear that penalty, which is eternal hell, a sentence that begins at physical death, but instead, many are shown grace rather than fairness. If God was fair, everybody would be in hell. 
undeserved favor as opposed to well-earned justice. When, by the Holy Spirit's power of regeneration, which is a miracle, upon hearing the good news at God's appointed time, he provides spiritual resurrection and a new nature within. That's his work, causing a simultaneous death and resurrection, spiritually speaking. That glorious rescue is then received by us through faith apart from works of the law. Free gospel grace, which means I contribute absolutely nothing to that glorious work of salvation except my sin. It's the only thing I contribute is my sin. Even the faith I have to believe it is a gift from God. We just read it in Ephesians 1 and 2. I offer nothing. I provide zilch. It is God who offers and provides everything. That, my friends, is the core gospel. That is the core gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came into this world to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Not all. Many. Not for those who think that they're good enough in themselves. Not for the fools who, thinks, who think in their head God helps those who help themselves. But free gospel grace for those that he has brought to the place of being poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. He brings them to the place of realizing their moral bankruptcy before holy almighty God. Theirs is the kingdom. Free gospel grace. The apostle Paul experienced and regularly anticipated protests against that glorious gospel message over and over again. Some fearing that, that, that those, when they hear the message, will, will say, hey, I like to sin. God likes to forgive. What a great message. And because of that fear, Paul made many religious enemies to the gospel message. But Paul argues against that, does he not? In Romans 6, when he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. Paul also made enemies teaching what Jesus taught with regard to the gospel. And that is that, that true faith in Jesus Christ involves routine death to the old man. If anyone wishes to come after me, Jesus said, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will, will find it. Okay, that was yet another reason that the gospel message was despised by Paul's opponents. Paul's cross-centered life was rebuked by the false teachers who slithered into the Corinthian church right here in 2 Corinthians. Those peddlers of God's word, as Paul refers to them as, who diluted the message, they watered down the gospel, and they deceived some within the church there to reject Paul's ministry because he suffered so much for the gospel, deeming him as disqualified. 
saying that he cannot possibly be blessed of God because those who are blessed of God have health, wealth, and prosperity, not infirmity, scarcity, and poverty. I mean, look at the guy. He's constantly being bullied, bloodied, and bruised. Paul did not live his best life now, back then. For Paul, his suffering is what qualified him as an apostle, verifying that he was indeed following in the pathway of his Lord. And here, as we've seen now over the last two or three weeks, he has been teaching us how to see through our afflictions. Paul's made clear that being raised with Christ in this life does not, again, does not refer to the ability to escape suffering, but rather the power to endure it for the sake of Christ and his church. And so, to, remain, to, to hold on to and maintain a perspective so that we do not lose what? Heart. A phrase that brackets chapter 4. Do not, that we do not lose heart, verse 1. Do not lose heart, verse 16. And in chapter 4, if you look back at verse 16, therefore, we do not lose heart But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now in in chapter 4, the verses right before our passage this morning... As he explains that, he ends with referring to that eternal weight of glory that we looked into last Lord's Day. That weight of glory that he is preparing for his people. And this morning in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5, he elaborates on how we should think about that weight of glory to address in more detail what that glory is that God has prepared for us. That's what we're after this morning. Okay, that is where it is we should locate it and what it will mean for our lives right now. And that is primarily to view this world through the lens of God's promises for the future and not to get caught up in the here and now. Friends, that is what made Paul so earthly good. What made him so earthly good? He was so heavenly minded. You know, sometimes you hear, you know, some people are so heavenly good, they're no earthly minded. Those who are so heavenly minded are the ones who are so earthly good. This is what motivated the man to run with endurance. This is what drove the man to keep going, to persist, to persevere and not lose heart. That is what's before us this morning. This text confirms for us what it is to live for Christ. So, at the same time, as it confirms it for us, it also confronts us. We ask the question, okay, what is it we're living for? What is it you are living for? What is the primary locus of focus of your life? What is is most important in our lives? What gives us courage to follow and live for Christ, especially when it is very difficult to do so and not lose heart? Well, we must develop a two-world view. A two-world view. Um, This world and the world 
to come. Things that are seen, we see it over and over again. The temporal, including what Paul refers to as light affliction. We understand all the affliction he suffered. He called it light and momentary. <laughs> to view that in comparison to that which is not seen, things eternal. Now, in verses 1 through 5, we see that life eternal follows this present momentary life. And in verses 6 through 10, the fact that we have eternal life reinforces, again, the fact that we have eternal life reinforces, or it ought to reinforce, a cheerful confidence in the here and now. Are you with me? Friends, he's talking about immortality. The Apostle Paul is telling us that man is not merely a creature for time. He is a creature of eternity. Friends, you do not possess a living soul. You are a living soul. Every one of you, a living soul, and you will spend, you will spend eternity somewhere. Either in the bliss of God's presence in heaven, and ultimately a new heaven and a new earth and a glorified body, or in the torment of the damned in hell. One or the other. You know, I've heard of unbelievers who have attended here with a believing friend, perhaps a believing spouse, and they um, tire of attending. And when the spouse or the friend asks, well, why don't you want to come to church? And they usually say, well, I don't need to hear every week that I'm going to hell. But for all who resist Christ and his glorious gospel of grace, the greatest thing that I can do for you is to issue that warning while you still breathe. With the hope that God through the message, will grant you repentance and faith. That's one reason why we do what we do. Because, Scripture's clear, those who remain in stubborn unbelief, because of your hard and impenitent heart, Romans 2 verse 5, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What kind of judgment? Righteous judgment. So it is only the fool who lives for the present with no mind for the future. Verse 1. For we, all who are in Christ, know that if the early tent, if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And now Paul here is referring to the physical body. The physical body in this life, he says, is like a tent. It is transient. It is temporary, and if it is torn down, literally dismantled, in its place we have a building, he says, from God, eternal, in the heavens, from a tent to a building. Talk about making a move. You'll be asking no one to help move you in. You need not to borrow anybody's truck, including mine. <laughs> You'll be moving from something of this creation to something not of this creation. And notice three times Paul refers to this present life as dwelling in a tent. Verse 1, verse 2, and verse 4. This is our hope. We who are in Christ. We know this. So for Paul, this was a very tangible um, analogy because he was a tent maker by trade. Amen? To supplement his income as, as an apostle as he traveled about, we're told in Acts 18, verses 1 through 3, 
that he was a tent maker by trade. Look at it. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working. For by trade, they were tent makers. Tent makers. He knew about tents. He made them. He repaired them. He understood their purpose. A tent is temporary. It is a flimsy structure, easily destroyed by wind, rain, and the elements. Scorching sun, and so on. Right? You go camping. My wife and I used to take our children camping quite often as they were growing up, and you would um, erect a tent, and you know you're not going to live in it forever, amen? It's coming down. If you live in a tent forever, you're homeless. You know it's coming down. The more camping you do, you understand that they wear down. They tear. You get a rip in the seam, right? It, It rains and it leaks. And you usually discard it and go buy another one. Ten. So, in other words, this is Paul's, this analogy is simply Paul's polite way of saying that we are all going to die. This earthly tent. Now, it's good. It is to be cared for, not ignored. But the problem is that these tents are racked with problems. Weakness, bad backs sciatic nerve issues, weakness, illness, and above all else, they're affected by sin, infected by sin. So um, dwelling in it as we do under this present curse, these tents. And the good news here is that This tent is going to be transformed into something greater. Just as the tabernacle under the old covenant that the Israelites had to move about, the priests, right? They would erect the tent. When God moved, pillar of fire, pillar of smoke, they moved the tabernacle. And eventually... That was transformed into a permanent structure, the temple. Perhaps Paul has this in mind as he pens these words. There's going to be a transformed body. The body that God made in the beginning, he says, was very good. But bearing the consequence of of, of Adam's curse, there's nothing but trouble and death. So God, in his grace, sent the last Adam to redeem what was lost in the first Adam by taking on human flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, by way of union with Christ, we too will be transformed, these bodies. Is that glorious? That's glorious news. This is our hope for verse 2. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. In other words, life in this world is full of pain. Full of pain. And it's not going to get any better, by the way. We ache, we sigh, we wince, and in Christ, we yearn for the next life. We're unfulfilled. We're presently incomplete. We are imperfect, and we groan especially because of sin within. Especially. So Paul who is wearied of the frustrations of this life, its limitations, 
all of its many disappointments, you know, being, chapter 4, verse 8, afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down, Paul groans with a passionate longing. This is another way he does not lose heart. Looking to eternal things. Verse 3, we will not be found naked. What does that mean? Well, he's talking about the, the disembodied soul. When a believer dies, his body goes to the ground, down to the ground. His soul, immediately present with the Lord. Okay, So there's a separation at death for all. For the believer, his spirit goes with the Lord, his body, worm dirt. Warm food buried in the dirt. Okay, but that's not the, that, that is not the Christian's final state. Uh, do we understand this? So many Christians believe that you die, your spirit goes to be with the Lord, and then you just live happily ever after. That is not what the Bible teaches. Again, that is not what the Bible teaches as the end. That's known as the intermediate state. You know, your grandma who loved Jesus, her body is rotted in the ground. Her spirit, her spirit, with the Lord. When Christ returns, he's bringing with him the souls of the saints. And their souls will be joined back together with their bodies at the resurrection on the last day. Glorified bodies, not unlike the Lord himself, to dwell in a new heaven and a new earth, which is permanent and eternal. We will not be left naked. It's not the intermediate state forever. Now, compare that with the secular view of life. What's the secular view of life? Let's just live and let live. Let, we'll define what love is. Bunch of fools. And, you know, most everyone is, you know, justified by death. How do you get to heaven? Well, you just die. You know, unless you're Hitler or someone like that. All dogs go to heaven, don't they? I mean, when they die, what do they say? Well, he's in a better place. But they denied Christ. Oh, wait, uh, mm, uh. The better place. Nirvana. You know, some sort of never-never land. That's how they think. Nevertheless, you don't dare bring up death to most secular-minded people. I mean, that is the great sin of the day, is it not? To talk about death to, 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 to most pagans? Because the epitome of sensitivity is to pretend that death is not looming over every single human being right now. Death is stalking them. And they don't want to talk about it. Because extending life here is what heaven seems to be to the secular-minded individual. Live as long as possible. Save as much money as possible. Retire as soon as possible. And stay healthy as long as possible. Newsflash, you're still going to die. One out of every one persons died. We have hope. We have hope that is not seen. This is what he's trying to press into our hearts. These are the things that we need to be looking towards. Heavenly things, the eternal. Things that are temporal, that waste away. Health. House. Houses. Home, that is family. Lives. It's all passing away. We're going to go from something that is indeed passing to something that is 
eternal. We're going to be eternally clothed. Verse 4, for indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Swallowed up. So although death and the grave devour mortal humanity, they will ultimately surrender to the power of Christ's eternal life. To be swallowed up. He will swallow up mortality when salvation is applied in full. Your salvation hasn't been applied in full yet, beloved. Not until this day when you're clothed, fully clothed. Salvation's final installment is going to be the glory of Jesus Christ. We're going to be glorified and dwell on a glorified earth. That's salvation's final installment. No more tent, but an eternal building. A glorified body fit for a glorified universe. That's how we must think about everlasting life. Amen? Not that you just float off into heaven, live happily ever after. Amen? The Bible does not teach that. That, again, is the what state? Theologians call the intermediate state. God promised this long ago. We read from it at the opening of the service. Look at it, Isaiah 25. The Lord of hosts, this is 750 years before Christ. The prophet. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering. What's the covering? Death. Death. Which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations, he will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us, that is in full. This is the Lord for whom we have waited, let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is his work. Not yours, not mine. This is his salvation. Now, the fulfillment of that prophecy, the final installment of prophecy, comes with a down payment. Verse 5. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. The residing presence of the Holy Spirit in God's people is God's pledge of our inheritance, down payment. Which tells us that this glory, friends, is already ours. You're already citizens of heaven. We read it in Ephesians this morning. You're already seated in heavenly places. Amen? Amen? Christ is seated at the right hand of God Almighty, and we're seated right there. So, we are an extension of Christ's presence and authority on this present earth. Understand that? An extension of his authority, his presence. You are the salt of the earth. You're a city set on a hill, light of the world in Christ. So Christ dwelling in us by his spirit tells us that this immortality in life is ours in Christ already. Down payment. Woohoo. And we need to remember this because being a disciple of Jesus Christ in this world is not always easy. He never said that it would be. Did he? 
No, he did not. No, in this world you will suffer, especially for my namesake. If they hate you, they hated me long before they hated you. They hate you because you declare me. Following Jesus in this world is difficult, especially, especially in service to him, for him. It can be very costly in many ways. That's why we ought to all count the cost. So Paul tells us how he can be of good courage, not losing heart, while he faces disappointments, afflictions, persecutions, and the great enemy that comes after us all, death. Death. Paul now teaches us that the certainty of life after death, down payment's already yours, you have the spirit, how that gives Christians a cheerful confidence. Cheerful confidence. Verse 6, therefore, based on the preceding, therefore, being always of good courage, always of good courage, which means complete confidence, always of good courage. Now I can tell some of you are thinking, I wish I were always of good courage. I'm not always of good courage. Uh, I wish I were ever confident. I'm not ever confident. Look, while your life in these clay pots, right? Remember chapter four? You're an earthen vessel, weak, baked, dirt. That's all we are. So in these clay pots is faith that is mingled with unbelief. Okay? In these clay pots, right, the treasure, we love the treasure, we love the gospel. Do we love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Well, we surely want to, and in Christ we do. But in and of ourselves, that love is also mingled with a lot of self-love. It's called selfishness. And he says, we can be ever confident, right, in the midst of doubts and fears and difficulties. Yes. How? Knowing. Knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Verse 7, for we walk by what? Faith, not by sight. That's how. We walk by faith, always of good courage, ever confident, because our salvation does not depend on our feelings. Your salvation does not depend upon how you feel presently. It depends upon Christ's finished work. Are you with me on this? That's the confidence. Our acceptance with God does not depend on our measure of faith. It's all dependent upon the measure of his faithfulness. That's how. It doesn't depend on our righteousness. It depends on his righteousness. It does not depend on your obedience and sacrifices it is fully dependent upon his sacrifice and obedience. That's how we're ever confident. For we walk, verse 7, by faith and not by sight, and therefore always of good courage. And therefore we are ever confident because we're in him. We're of good courage because of what we know. How do you know these things, beloved? Is it some feeling that floats down to you? It's the scripture. It's the living word of God. Not through reason of man, not through philosophy of men, but by way of divine revelation. Which the natural man cannot comprehend. The natural man does not discern the things of God. It requires the spirit who has sealed you. Down payment. 
down payment for God's final installment, which is a glorified body and a glorified earth. Through the finished work of Jesus Christ, we walk by faith, not by what? Sight. Verse 8, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, that, that verb means to be cheerful, to have joy, happiness, to be confident, to be content as we walk by faith. That's how Paul faced death right there. That's how Paul faced the hatred of very religious people. That's how he faced his enemies, the false apostles, the thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan, sent to buffet him. Paul actually preferred to die. Philippians 1.21, for me, to live is Christ, to die, gain, baby, gain. We walk by faith, not by sight. See, he, he, he thought about heaven so much, he was earthly good, unlike any other throughout redemptive history. And over the course of 2,000 years of church history, those who have been most earthly good are the ones who are most heavenly minded because their ministries and their lives were shaped by these heavenly promises. Witness? Indeed. This is the lesson he wants to drive home. Therefore, verse 9, therefore, we also have as our ambition, okay, that is devoted service. This is our ambition, whether at home or absent, that is to be pleasing to him, to be pleasing to the Lord. Friends, although there is nothing that we can do to cause God to love us any more or any less than he already does in Christ. He can't love you more than he does in Christ already. He cannot love you any less than he loves you presently in Christ. Amen? Okay, is that clear? As much as you mess up, he can't love you any less because you're loved in his precious son. You can't go do enough to cause him to love you anymore. However, there are things that we can do and not do in this life that either please or displease him. Amen? Trusting faith pleases him. Hebrews 11, we're told that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Trusting faith pleases God. Heartfelt praise throughout the Psalms pleases God. Uh, obedience to divinely instituted authority pleases God. Single-minded Christian service pleases God. Generosity pleases God. Many things that please God. Quenching the Holy Spirit does not please God. This, this is just the aim of, of living a life that makes evident to others that he is our greatest treasure. This is our ambition, he says. Our ambition, says the apostle, whether at home or absent, is to be pleasing to him. Now, as Paul contemplates someday being present with the Lord, notice, it is a thought that not only invigorates his ambition, verse 9, it also sobers him. Look at this. It gives him pause to, to, to think that, that something else awaits him in the future life. And that is the reality that there's going to be an accounting for what he has done in this body. You see this? So not only will Paul experience glory when he is with Christ, 
he will also have to give an account to Christ for the life that he has lived in this earthly tent, which is deteriorating. This is another thing, by the way, that kept Paul from losing heart amidst his afflictions. Right here. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Okay, let me, let me make it clear right out of the chute. This is not referring to the great white throne judgment of God. Okay? The great white throne judgment is reserved for those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. They will be judged for their sin. You will not. This is not a judgment for sin. It's believer, believer. This is not a judgment for sin. That judgment for sin was paid for in the body of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paid in, in full. All right? So being in Christ, God's wrath passes over you. Like the Israelites, before they fled from Egypt, they slaughtered a lamb and painted its blood on the doorposts and the lentil. And the angel of death, God's justice, what? Passed over the homes that were covered by the blood. You, all who are in Christ, are covered by the blood of the lamb. God's justice passes over you. That cup of wrath, Jesus drank to the dregs. There's nothing left. In Christ, God is appeased. Propitiation has been made. You have nothing to fear. Those not in Christ have no protection from the wrath of God. They will be judged according to their own righteousness, which utterly fails. If you died today, would you go to heaven? Yeah. Well, why do you think? Well, because I'm a good person. Because I pick up garbage in my neighborhood with a community service, and we go pick up trash and cut down weeds and bushes. That's why I'm going to heaven. You're a fool. And I say you're a fool when you've been taught that the only way, or it's been declared to you that the only way you can be saved is through faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, who bears God's wrath against sin and sinners. And by grace, you can receive it or you'll pay for your own sin. But I pick up garbage. Good for you. He judges in righteousness, and your righteousness fails to meet the standard. Okay, so if sin were the issue here with regard to God's people... Somehow the cross was incomplete, okay? So are we clear? This is not a judgment for your sin, believer. The believer has a different kind of judgment. Notice this is a we and not a they. We must all, we believers, those in Christ, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment seat in Greek, the bema seat. Bema. It means a place reached by steps. And in the ancient Greek world, it referred to an elevated platform where victorious athletes would ascend to receive their crowns, their laurel wreath for victory in the games. Corinth understood the Bema seat because in Corinth, that is where they held the Isthmian games that were second only to the Greek games, the Olympics in Greece. Our Olympian athletes step up onto platforms to receive their medals. The Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. What he's referring to here, um, quite clearly, simply, is degrees of rewards for what we have done in these bodies while on this earth. That's what's being taught. This is what drove Paul. This is another way he did not lose hope as he suffered affliction. You know, in the Gospels, Jesus speaks of rewards in heaven 26 times. 
Do we want to downplay this? No. We must all appear. We must, those in Christ, we must all appear. There, there are people in this world who serve Christ that the world knows very little about, if anything at all. Serving Christ faithfully in very remote places, ooh, it's all manifest to God, baby. And they will receive rewards on the last day for their faithfulness. No one knows who they are. God does. The Lord Jesus knows them. And they're serving him, and they'll be rewarded. Notice, according to what he has done, whether good or bad, that is, whether good or evil. Now, this word is not moral evil. This is not iniquity. The word used here simply means worthless. Okay? The bad or the evil is the useless. Everything will be examined by the fiery eyes of Christ. He sees through everything. That's what's in view. So this judgment for believers, will include a disclosure and evaluation of our motives in serving Christ. There'll be people who are in heaven because they stood on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, who served primarily for the applause of men. There will be pastors who messed with the message because the stench of the gospel for some was driving unbelievers away, so they tried to mess with the aroma. They believe in Christ, but on that day, their motives for that method will be examined by the fiery eyes of Christ. Amen? Paul knew this. 1 Corinthians 4, look at it. Verse 4. I am conscious of nothing against myself, Yet I'm not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the, the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Back in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, remember you had all these teachers hustling and bustling, teaming up. Corinthians were teaming up with this guy. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Paul. And the super hyper-religious ones, well, I'm of Jesus. I don't need a teacher. He said this, 1 Corinthians 3, Verse 12, now if any man builds on the foundation, the foundation is Jesus Christ and him crucified, raised again, ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, rules and reigns now and forevermore. They believe in him, they trust in him. They're in ministry. Now what they build upon that foundation with will be made manifest on the last day. Notice, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it. What day? The Bema seat, the judgment seat. This day, the day will show it because it is revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now, there's gonna be men there, if you go on to read that, who are saved, they stood on the foundation, but it's all gonna be burned up. And they're going to smell as though they just escaped from a burning structure. And they will suffer what? Loss of what? Salvation? No, of course not. They're on the foundation. Loss of reward. This is what drove the man. Not to lose heart. This is another thing that drove the man. So there, in chapter 3, he, he addresses the evaluation of Christian ministry, that is, motives behind ministerial methods. Don't mess with the message. Don't tickle man's ears, preacher, because you will give an account. Beware lest many become teachers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. It's that judgment. John MacArthur comments on this. I think you'll be greatly encouraged. 
This is not from one of his books. You, you, you can tell it's not from a book. This is from a sermon manuscript. You ready? Quote, what he's going to show us is the amazing work that God has done in us. I think we will all be surprised, not at what was burned up, but at what was left. It's at that moment that all the hypocrisies, all of the concealments, all the secrets, all the facades, all the wasted, worthless, useless stuff, does that not sound like MacArthur or what? is all stripped away. And God who looks at the heart, God who looks at the heart, shows us what he sees. I think we're all going to praise God for the fact that through all the junk, there was gold, silver, and precious stones there. End of quote. And oh, amen, thank you, Lord Jesus. I, I don't, don't want to see all my facades and hypocrisies on that day. I, I don't want to see where my motives were, were for the applause of men in my life. I don't want to see that, so it's going to be burned up, and then we'll see what's gold. Amen? Be encouraged, saints. Christ will commend us openly for the service we render to him in this life, in these tattered tents, these weak clay pots, as lame as that service may have been. Amen? When you're like a loving father whose child wants to please their dad, wants to please their mom, so they go do this thing, or they simply obey because they want to please their parent. What do you want to do as a loving parent? Reward them. And you're a sinner. How much more God, how much more does he want to reward his people? Amen? Because all the gifts come from him anyhow. He's the beginning and the end. Augustine said this, quote, God's way of giving us rewards is simply him crowning his own gifts. Anybody got a problem with that? Any Arminians in here who have a problem with that? You should be rejoicing right now that he's going to reward you for gifts he's given you in the first place. All you did was exercise them, not by sight, but by faith. Your heavenly home awaits you. Good works are simply fruit, the fruit of faith. That's it. You're here by faith. God will reward you for being in service under his word your entire lives, Christian lives. The service that we offered to Christ in this life, the service that we offered to his people, the service that you offered to your neighbor, all the good that you do for his name's sake, just like a father loves a child who wants to please him, he's even more pleased. This is what drove the man. So to Paul, this was great encouragement. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He said this, Truly I say to you, boys, truly I say, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. A cup of water to someone who loves Christ when they were thirsty. Amen. Martin Bootser one of the reformers said this, quote, when God rewards our good works, he's rewarding his works and gifts in us rather than our own works. Amen? There's gold, brother. There's silver, sister. There's precious stones, children. Because he's glorified as we reflect him. This drove the man. Not to lose hope as we suffer affliction for the name of Christ. So we look not to the things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For things which are seen are temporal, but things which are not seen are eternal. And knowing this, knowing this, and I close, knowing this, knowing this, we persuade others who 
we're on the broad road to hell. We persuade others knowing this, having received this. And that we'll look at next time. For to me, to live is Christ. To die, gain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Glorious hope, certainty we have because of the finished work of your son. Um, help us to hold on to these truths and to, to look up, upward as we're always faced with opposition, struggle, in our own sin within, down here. Um, help us to look to the one who's finished it all on our behalf and simply abide, walking by faith, not by sight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.